I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Bill Boggs joins me now. The legendary broadcaster has just published a new book, Spike Unleashed, The Wonder Dog Returns. It's a follow-up to his uh, 2020 book, The Adventures of Spike the Wonder Dog. These are hilarious, timely, and biting novels as told to Bill Boggs by Spike, an English bull terrier who finds himself a television and social media sensation. We continue following Spike and his adventures in American popular culture and politics. Along the way, alongside his human bud and through Mr. Boggs, we get that often humorous, absurdist social commentary about the world of entertainment that Spike has uh, seemingly found himself in the midst of. I'll ask Bill about the real dog that he had that inspired Spike that appeared with him on local television back in North Carolina. The Philadelphia native was then lured to New York City, where in 1975 he became the host of WNEW's Midday Live. He became a star in New York City with his daily program that featured guest appearances by everybody, including Frank Sinatra. A classic, which you can find on Bill's YouTube channel, Bill Boggs TV, which it really says says it all about uh, the 1970s in New York in the 70s especially, features Lawrence Welk and the Studio 54 fixture Disco Sally. I'll ask Bill about the fame that catapults Spike to superstardom as well as the celebrity that Bill also experienced in those days that he was on New York Television Daily. He went on to produce the syndicated series Comedy Tonight and the Morton Downey Jr. show, and he had a regular program on the Food Network, as well as uh, other outlets. Visit uh, his website at billboggs.com. This new book is published by Post Hill Press. He joined me from New York City a week and a half ago. Please uh, welcome to the Plant on the Line program, Bill Boggs. Mr. Boggs, good morning. Well, I'm happy to be with you, Joseph. I greatly appreciate your interest in talking to me, and um, thank you. Um, this is uh, this book, Spike Unleashed, as well as the first one. Um, they're they're just hilarious books. They're, 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 you have to you put them down because you're laughing so hard. That's the only time you really put them down. Um, so, so these are as told to books, but there's so much yes. in here that, that yeah, one you. wonders why you use a character to get out what you want to say about the world around you. I mean, did, did, did you think... Um, at one point, you, you would write, say, essays or, or uh, in your own voice. Why use the dog, say? It's, it's a very interesting question. Of course, there have been quite successful books narrated by dogs. Mm-hmm. The Call of the Wild and uh, The Art of Racing in the Rain, both made in the movies, come, come to mind. With regard to the first book, The Adventures of Spike the Wonder Dog, by the way, this, as you know from reading both books, Joseph, these are not children's books, right. but you know, a dog is involved. And the new book that just literally just came out, which you've been kind enough to read, Spike Unleashed, The Wonder Dog Returns, that's a sequel to the first book, but you do not have had to have read the first book in order to, to, to dig the sequel. To answer your question about the voice of the dog, the simplest thing I can tell you is that in the mystical process of writing, it just happened. I wanted to write a story about a, a talk show host like me and a dog and the trajectory in the first book about they both become very popular and the price of fame. The second book is not about the price of fame, but the, that was the first book. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a novel way back in, in 1980 called At First Sight that ultimately was optioned for, um, for a 
movie. But what led to the Avengers of Spike the Wonderdog, as told to Bill Boggs, I just started writing the book, and that's what came out. The, the voice of the dog uh, in my mind, now this starts to sound a little nuts, but the creative process is very different. It's a mystical thing. Enabled me in some way that I don't understand to write in a voice, a rhythm, a tempo, a melody, and a perspective, mainly, that I had never had before. Uh, and I can summon Spike's voice almost at will. If, like, if, if you wanted me to make a comment on Spike, I can pretty much put myself in that zone. So to a certain extent, I have a voice in my head, yeah. to, which is good. Now, after about halfway through the first book, I thought, you know, I have to write a preface to explain. I was reading about psilocybin in the New York Times. As a writer, I think it's very important to read a lot, particularly I'm writing satire. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm basically viewing the culture pretty much of the United States of America and how it spills over into other countries like Canada, UK, and so forth, how we pick up these things, right? So it's very important to read a lot. And I was reading about psilocybin, and I thought, that's it. I will set up a scenario as a preface to the book where... Somehow, I am with I, not, not Bud, his, his owner and master. Is with, I am with Spike, and I'm participating in a psilocybin thing for ABC television. I am in the book as myself, the yeah. first book. And what happens is Spike sees that I'm, I've fallen asleep and I'm drooling, and he doesn't want me to be embarrassed in case the sexy nurse walks in the room. There's a, a, a National Enquirer photographer lurking around. He doesn't want a picture of me taken uh, with drool running out of my mouth with the, the caption, Bill Boggs sat in. So he licks the drool and thus subsequently gets a dog-sized dose of psilocybin. This is all described in like a yeah. page and a half. And so we, the dog and I make a connection obviously, fictionally here, uh -huh. uh, and that enables him to tell me the story. Uh, so it, it, it's the new book is Spike Unleashed, uh -huh. the one that all returns as told to Bill Boggs. And and that's the thing I know. Uh, having followed your career as I have over the years, I, I know what you're thinking. I follow you on Instagram as well. I, I know where you're coming from on a, on a, a variety of issues. So I see that in the books. But Spike himself is uh, totally different from you, isn't he? Well, Spike is me. To the, yeah, yeah, the answer to that question is yes and no. Yes. And no, uh, Spike conveys obviously my thoughts, my understanding, my analysis, my annoyance at culture, the things I like, mm -hmm. and channels. I've always been in the comedy since I, I was in a comedy team in high school, for, for heaven's sakes. So I've always I began my career managing a comedy team. I'm writing comedy, so I've always been in the comedy somehow. The spike zone enabled me to do to do what I've done. Uh, I I would love sometime to be on a panel with other writers to discuss what happened to me creatively that enabled me to to write these books. If you said write them in your own voice, mm -hmm. it, it would come out differently. Yeah, um, and I understand that he was based on a dog that you had years ago. Is that right? 
Well, yeah, the, the German the essence of the story was that before I came to New York City to do a show, Midday Live, with Bill Boggs, which is a live 90-minute show, which I did for 13 years up here, uh, here in New York, mm-hmm. I had a quite successful show in High Point, North Carolina, called Southern Exposure with Bill Boggs, that beat the Today Show. It was syndicated on about five stations in the South. And I had an offer, because of the success of that show, to come up to New York, or I could have gone to Miami or San Francisco. Now, the original general manager of the station who hired me, who put together the syndication deal, had left. And there was a new general manager. I was not the least bit certain that the new general manager was going to put the time and the energy to make Southern Exposure grow even more. Mm-hmm. If the original general manager hadn't left, I think we would have had a syndicated show on par with the Phil Donahue show, the Out of the South. But that just didn't happen. So I, I came to New York. But before coming to New York, the dog on my show, who was my own dog of my own, named Spike, uh, I, I created him as a personality on the program, Joseph, as Spike the Wonder Dog. He was beloved. Yeah. He got mail. I'd walk down the street with him. People wanted pictures with him and stuff. This is before selfies, right? That dog got killed shortly before I came to New York for this big break. So the thought that I had was when I decided I'm going to focus on being a writer, that my TV career was pretty much behind me with 15 shows I hosted, you know, in, as I approached, as in my, as I hit age 70, uh-huh. uh, I just uh, said, what is Spike? And a guy like me came to New York in today's world and became really big stars. The dog becomes a star. And that, that was the, the idea of it. It takes me a long time to, honestly, a long time to do the setup of how that happened. Yeah. You don't have to know any of this to start enjoying the book, as you, you know, because you've been reading it without knowing that particularly. Yeah, the, it's a, a, a fascinating way that you look at fame. And, and uh, you, you mentioned a moment ago the price of fame. Um, because th- this happened to you, obviously, in the 1970s. Um, yeah. And, and you, you get to New York City. I mean, and you couldn't walk down the street without people recognizing you a bit. Well, actually, I'll give you an interesting example of what I learned very quickly in New York about the ethnocentrism of, of many people who live in New York City. So <clears throat> before I came to New York, I had this show, Southern Exposure. It was in a, well, a medium-sized market, ABC affiliate. Uh-huh. And it, it was, I was on that show for three years. It was an hour every day. And everywhere I went, in High, in High Point, in Thomasville, Greensboro, Winston-Salem, everywhere, people recognized me as if I were, say, on the par with, Paul Newman walking around, or Sean Connery, or Robert Redford. That familiar, right, that familiar. I'm not comparing myself to them. I just mean with familiarity. So when I came to New York, ironically, it was less intense. I became somewhat self-conscious that I would walk into a restaurant and, you know, 60, 70% of the people in the restaurant pointing, whispering at me. Uh, I, and I became slightly self-conscious. It affected my personality. So I came to New York, and yes, I was, after a while, not the first day, but after like several months, people recognized me, how you doing? But 
here's what I want to tell you about the ethnocentrism. So at a cocktail party, about a year in, someone came, I was talking to a woman. Uh, I didn't know her. You know, it was a really nice high-level cocktail party. And a guy I didn't know said, oh, you're Bill Box from TV, right? Yes, I greeted him and everything. Uh, you never get a second chance to make a first impression, talk to him. So he left, and the woman said, wow, that really must be interesting and kind of intense to be recognized, like, as a public figure. So I took, I said, yes, I'll tell you something. It's not as bad as it used to be, and it's not as, it's not as intense as it used to be, Joseph, I said. Yeah. Because before I came to New York, I, blah, 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 I went through the whole story of this, and you know what the woman said? But that was only North Carolina. <laughs> As if yeah. all of the intensity of being recognized there didn't count because it wasn't New York City. And mm. I never forgot that line. Never. Yeah. And there's an element of that in the second book of that, that kind of behavior. Yeah. Um, the other thing that, that uh, as you said a moment ago, this is not a book for children, obviously, because a lot of the humor is... is uh, yeah, this, this is basically an R-rated, somewhat yeah. raunchy, raunchy satire uh, with absurdist humor in it, um, I, uh, yes, I I try to. It's not for your. It's not for your seventh year old seven year old birthday yeah, party. Exactly. So Spike uh, is not what one would call, say, politically correct. Um, no, Spike is our, our, Spike our, is not politically correct, and I am not politically correct. Yeah. So are, that, are you drawn to write like that out of say nostalgia, even? Not in the least bit. Not out. Of, that, that's a very interesting question. No, I'm just drawn to write in, in the form I want to write in. I firmly believe that a society that can, quote me on this, a society cannot, that cannot laugh at itself is in big trouble, mm. period. I think we have to be laughing at our differences, laughing at our stereotypes, our, some of our stereotypes, laughing at ourselves. As my dear friend, my favorite female comedian, Judy Gold, wrote a whole book. When they come for the comedians, we're in trouble. Mm. And I have, I have friends who, I have a friend, a guy named Dave Cotter. He, he's, a, he's a wonderful, wonderful comedian. He works all the time. He said to me, you know, a week ago, I did a show for about 80 people. And someone like, in middle, I said something, I'm joking around about my wife. And somebody went, boo, boo, like that. And I made light of it. Well, that person went on social media and vilified me the next day. And, you know, with the amplification of social media, within two days, he was practically getting hate mail for a line that he says designed to make people laugh. So I'm against all of that. Obviously, look, humor, humor, by its definition, Joseph, is transgressive. By its very de definition. It's, for the most part, unless you're gentle humorous like Will Rogers or something like that, you are pushing against some boundary to get, to get a reaction that's a humorous reaction or a surprising analysis of something. It's a setup and then the punchline is different than what you think it's going to be. So I'm quite for freedom of expression. I'm quite for, you know, First Amendment when it comes to comedians. And I, I don't want to offend people with my book, but if somebody reads something in the book that offends them, that, that's unfortunate. But it doesn't give them a license 
to get on a high horse and, and try to amplify their negative opinion of something to as many people in the world as possible. But it happens. It hasn't happened to me yet, though. Yeah. It happens to people. Well, we, um, you talk about fame in, in the second book, Spike Unleashed. Yeah. And the, the thing that I'm curious about is, is how different is the New York City that, that you came to, say, in the 1970s, 50 years ago, as opposed to the one of today that Spike, say, arrives at? Um, oh, wow. Let, let's see. Well, I came, I came to New York in 1975. And during the course of my life, I've hosted like 15 different shows. I've done all kinds of stuff out of New York, North Carolina, and L.A. for a while. So the New York, I like to say, people say it's not, it's not like it used to be. Of course it's not. In 1975, people were saying it's not like it used to be, mm, right? Yeah. In 1960, they were saying, well, you know, the 50s in New York were really great. So there's, there's always a progressive, a progressive change. Change is inevitable. Growth from that change is optional. So here's some things that are wildly different now in New York City, far than in 1975. Far, far, way more people living on the street. Way more people living on the street. Uh, more uh, crazy people wandering around than there were in 1975. Uh, people smoking pot, which I'm all for, legalization of marijuana. Mm -hmm. Everywhere you go, you can smell pot. Even at the U.S. Open, some of the, the players were complaining that people outside the stands in the park, and it was wafting, wafting over them. <laughs> uh, nail salons. There weren't nail salons in 1975. Now, every other block, there's like a, there's a, a Korean nail salon. There weren't salad bars. Now, I, I love the salad bars in North Carolina. I couldn't find one in New York in 1975. Um, some institutions, like Elaine's Restaurant, Bobby Short at the Cafe Carlisle, uh, the, the 21 Club are no longer here. They, they've disappeared. Um, Times Square used to be a seedy place for a lot of hookers. And 8th Avenue, the same thing. Uh, that's gone. The hookers have moved to Brooklyn, where it's, it's, it's like Thailand at one point, one area of Brooklyn, but they're not, they're not in Manhattan. Uh, still as much... New York is just as it was then. It is now. New York is a city ruled by impatience. Walking, and this is in the first book. Bud is Bud, the Spike's owner, and moved to New York, and he's, he's hurrying to the elevator. And one of his neighbors says, I can't wait for you, she screams. <laughs> and just as he gets to the elevator, the doors close right in his face, yeah. meaning that she was in such a hurry. This happened to me that she couldn't wait six seconds for him to get there. Yeah. Or, uh, you're in a line of cars, maybe 20 cars, uh, and the light, you're saying the 18th car, the light, 18 cars ahead of you turns green. One, two. If the, if the car in front of you is not moving instantly, honk, 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 which is nuts. I, 
sometimes I look out the window, I see where the people are honking, and with, with just because they're so impatient to get things moving, what they don't realize is I can hear it on the 20th floor of my apartment. Babies in carriages can heal it. Take a break, folks. Yeah. Take a deep breath. Relax. Have some patience. But New York is a city. And I love New York, but I'm not. Well, I'm, I'm a Philadelphian, Joseph. Yeah. I grew up in Philadelphia. I went to public school in Philadelphia. I went to the University of Pennsylvania. I lived home with my parents when I start with the when I was managing the comedy team. So I always have this little bit of um, objectivity about New York that a lot of the native New Yorkers uh, do, do not have because they see it as the center of the universe. Um, I, when I came to New York, I really enjoyed telling people, people, you know, tell me about yourself. What a wonderful time that I had living in High Point, North Carolina. I had my own show. I had, I had every six week off. I would travel around the world and stuff. And, you know, no one could grasp that I could really have had a good life in North Carolina. I, I'm not kidding. Yeah, yeah. I'm not kidding. And, and so when, when Spike makes it big in New York, it just seems today, um, it's, it's like that song, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Um, right, I agree it, with that. And it, and it happens so much more quickly, doesn't it, that if he does make it in New York, that, that's automatically a national thing where that might not have been for you, right? Uh, no, I don't understand your question. Can you put that another way, please? Joseph? Yeah, I, I, I guess that that if you if if you you make it in New York today, yeah. uh, you automatically become famous throughout the United States. Would that have been the case, say, in the nineteen seventies? I mean, you. you uh, I think I think so. I think that the, it, it, in the, in my case, people will say that the show I hosted is really part of New York television history. Mm -hmm. And so Midday Live with Bill Boggs, that was the title of the show. I'm Bill Boggs, if somebody just tuned in. Um, had an impact because of the people passing through New York, people moving out of New York. It was up in, it was on in Pennsylvania, it was on in Connecticut, it was on in, in you know, like the East Coast, but it was basically a, a regional show. Uh, you, it, it's not the same as being on the Today Show, you know, where everybody recognized you. I was on the Food Network for a while, mm -hmm. and I had that kind of national recognition. I was on the Food Network for 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 ten years, eight eight and a half years actually, eight and a half years. Yeah, um, you mentioned you know you could have been syndicated like Donahue at one point. Did do you wish that you had that national exposure, say early well, on? Well, yes, actually, you can't second guess your life, right? Ted Turner once offered me a job before CNN started, and for various reasons, which I don't want to go into, I, I declined Ted Turner. Declined. He was really pissed off. I declined him. And, you know, people say, Bill, that might have been the opportunity of a lifetime. Yeah, I could have been hit by a bus. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> Who knows? So uh, what I like about life of, on Southern Exposure before I came to New York was I had far more control over what I was doing because I was producing the show as well as hosting it. And then when I came to New York, Joseph, it was Midday Live with Bill Boggs, and Bill Boggs wasn't the producer. And a lot of times, I'd go in there with ideas of stuff that really worked in North Carolina. That got, and 
in a way, sometimes I think that they'd be slightly defensive mm-hmm. that I was uh, maybe usurping their job. They, uh, so I didn't have, I didn't never had the control on midday that I wished I had, that I had had in Southern Exposure. But then when Richard Baker and I produced Comedy Tonight, which was a syndicated show all over the country uh, for two seasons, 121 stations, I had complete control on the food network. I had great control over what I was doing. Um, so to me, in the creative process, the freedom to really be creative rather than have somebody say, well, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I like that idea or not. You know, when you know, essentially it's a, it's a good idea. And that's what I do mm-hmm. as a, as a producer and a host. The, the thing that strikes me is I, because I follow you on Instagram is that, that um, you're, you're the kind of guy that who I think could still do it today. Do, do you ever wish that you could be interviewing people today? Oh, yes, absolutely. I, if somebody would come to me and say, Bill, Bill Boz, we want you, we want you to interview, I think my, my interviewing chops would be better than ever. Mm-hmm. Because at one level, I don't care anymore. I'm not, I don't want people to like me. I just got to ask solid questions. The, the initial, um, the art of listening, which I perfected for myself uh, as, as a host. But, you know, you get to a certain point, age-wise. Well, I'll tell you a story. So I started on the Food Network in 94, okay? Mm-hmm. And eight years later, if you look at the video, say if you go to Bill Box TV on YouTube, and you look at the video of me interviewing Ivana Trump or me interviewing, uh, let's see, Sarah Ferguson, mm-hmm. Duchess of York, or interviewing just just take just take or Sophia Loren, right? There are a lot of big names there. You look at me, you look at Bill Box, you're looking at someone they already thought was too old looking. Mm-hmm. They asked one of the, one producer asked me, seeing a wisp of gray in my, a wisp in my hair, would I consider dyeing my hair? Another one suggested having a facelift. I'm not kidding. Wow. <laughs> the, the age obsession. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, in my mid-70s, I decided if somebody wants me, I'm easy to get. You can contact me. But right now I'm focusing on being a comedy writer. I just I changed my identity. Yeah. Uh, but it would be, and I could do a podcast, but the thing that I found was Everything that I add to my life, we had this podcast for a while during the pandemic. I loved it called Trap, Trapped Live with Bill Boggs. Yeah. I did it with my friend Jeff Leibowitz. You know, everything I do adds a layer of complexity to my life. If I'm trying to write a book, I wrote Spike Unleashed in a little over a year and a half. Wow. But it wouldn't have happened that way if I was doing a podcast. It's possible that I would put something, something together. I would want to do it with a technical person to do all the technical stuff. And they could be on like as an Ed McMahon character, like Jeff Leibowitz was on. Uh-huh. I wouldn't do it live, trying to do it live like we did. But So I might do that. I, I, I don't know what 2004 holds for me, but my objective is to take uh, the events of Spike the Underdog and Spike Unleashed as told the Bill Boggs, the new book, and see if I can get the material option for a cartoon series, adult cartoon. Yeah. And we were making progress toward that, but the uh, the writer's strike has pretty much ended 
the agents are just struggling yeah. to make enough money to, to meet their quotas for the, for their firms. And it, that's the thing that, as I'm reading Spike Unleashed in, in, in the first book, um, the, the humor just comes off as effortless. Um, I, I'm wondering you. what, uh, when you're writing, because it's a solitary process writing, um, do, do you make yourself laugh out loud? Um, I, um, I, in, so, in my solitude, which is to quote Duke Ellington, in yeah. my solitude, I will say to myself, that's funny, I like this. And then I'll go back and edit it. But until another person like you, Joseph, reads it and laughs out loud or, or comes back and he says, boy, I love that chapter, blah, 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 blah. I don't, it's not like a comedian can come up with material, go on stage, it doesn't get the laughs he or she wants, and yeah. they throw it out. With me, as a, as a writer of, of satire and comedy and absurdist humor and comic novels, which is all those titles apply to the, the Wonder Dog books, I'm trusting my instinct that it's funny. And for the most part, my instinct has been correct, I think. The other I thing mean, you told me, yeah. you told me you laughed out loud several uh, times reading the book. I did, yeah. The other thing that's that's enviable, not just in in your writing in these books, but when I watch your your work on YouTube, is um, you seem to to uh, put whoever you're talking to at ease. Um, Thank you. Th- that's Thank you. hard to do, having done this for a while now. Um, d- d- is that something that you were naturally good at? I mean, it's sort of uh, like humor yeah. that, that you, you, you must have had it early on. Did you? I found that I found that over the course of interviewing people, both say eighteen years of interviewing people on television, plus a couple more on my generation, the Food Network. Say, say over the course of almost twenty-four years of interviewing people, the number one thing that my guests said to me the most was, "I felt relaxed." I don't know where that came from. I, I really don't. But thank you for mentioning it, for sure. You, you mentioned Bobby Short a moment ago, and, and as you know, I'm a, a big fan of his, and, and uh, I also right. like we, Sylvia we Sims. Explain who Bobby Short was to somebody listening now, because we can't assume yeah. that we explain who he was. I guess the best thing is he was a, a cabaret singer. In, in New York City, and he, he, was, he, he was not in the big band era. He would have come after that. Right. Um, and um, I, I, I'm struggling to, to – it's sort of like the, the great American songbook, but in his own inimitable New York yes. style, I guess. Style. Is that the best way? Very art, sophisticated style. He played the piano and sang. Yeah. And um, so Bobby Short for many years, I mean decades, was the main attraction at the Cafe Carlisle, a truly beautiful, small, what, nightclub in the wonderful Hotel Carlisle on Madison Avenue and 78th Street. And through that, through his, that gig, and he played around the country, but through that gig, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people saw him, and the word just went out how wonderful he was. He just conveyed, he had impeccable taste in his songs, was a brilliant pianist. So, but the Bobby Short we're talking about, Richard Baker and I produced a show, Bobby Short and Friends at the Carlisle. Mm-hmm. That is available on my YouTube channel. You can take a look at it. The, the YouTube channel is Bill Boggs TV. And we can talk about some of the stuff there because I know you happen to like the YouTube channel. 
Um, you can go to Bill Box TV, become a subscriber. It's free. And you can roam through more than 400 videos of notable celebrities or even what a typical daytime talk show was like in, in 1970 and 1980, completely mm -hmm. different than the over-the-top stuff that you see, uh, you know, with, with Ellen DeGeneres or, or Drew Barrymore. Real, real conversations for long periods of time. Again, that's an example of something that's changed. Yeah. <clears throat> the, the, so, so you produced that that um, one-hour uh, special with Bobby Shore. Yeah. Uh, uh, what what was I, what was he like? I mean, it, he has that image, obviously, of the sophisticated, the, this tuxedo and, and, and the, the classy way he'd perform. But but was he the same way, say, off yeah, stage? Yeah. Bobby Shore was extremely erudite worldly, um, twinkled in his eye, uh, exuded warmth, but in a way had a tiny bit of haughtiness about him at the, at the same time. Uh, he, he and I, I had known Bobby Short before I even came to New York, uh -huh. so he was happy that when Richard Baker and I had it in 1980, while still doing Midday, we formed the production company, Boggs Baker Productions, and we did the following shows uh, in, in the early 80s. We did uh, Mink DeVille, a rocker, uh, Ian Hunter, uh, Lou Reed live, Frank Zappa, um, and Bobby Shore at the Carlisle, <clears throat> a cultural documentary of the Stuttgart Ballet, and a syndicated comedy series called Comedy Tonight, which I also hosted. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we had it. Sony was looking for something for home video. They liked the shows we produced. And I said to Sony, what about Bobby Short? No one's ever videotaped Bobby Short at the Catholic. No one. I said, no. It, it, there, no videotape record exists. So they immediately gave us a terrific budget to shoot the show. And I went to Bobby. He loved it. Oh, he was so happy. And then I came up with the idea, or Richard and I came up with the idea of... Um, having the audience at the Carlisle, which is only like a hundred so people, yeah. be black tie and packed with celebrities. So in the audience, you've got Leroy Neiman, Tony Bennett, uh, Barry Boswick, Jeffrey Holder and his wife, Lucy Arnaz, Jack Lemon, uh, Lawrence Luckenville, among, among uh, Francesco Scavulo, among many celebrities who are there, Monique Von Boren, and uh, Bobby had a good time, and it captures this feeling of what it was like to be at the Cafe Carlisle. Bobby Short and Friends on Bill Boggs TV on YouTube. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great show to watch. Thank um, you. Another Thank singer you. that I like, I mean, I, I grew up idolizing Sinatra, but it, it, as I've gotten older, I, I love discovering people like Bobby Short, Hugh Shannon, Sylvia Sims. Um, there's another great clip, I guess, was it your last show on Midday? Where um, anyway, the clip is is Lionel Hampton and Sylvia Sims doing them their eyes. Um, was she almost like a regular on on that show? Yeah, wait a second. That's on the last midday show. I'm going to take that little part out and put it as, as a separate thing. So Sylvia, I, I'm unaware of this. Sylvia Sims and Lionel Hampton are performing. On the last midday show, I think it's wow. the last midday show. I think something like okay, that. But... I'm going to check. I'm going to check that out. That's terrific. Yeah. Well, what was your question? What was she like? 
Uh, you know, Frank Sinatra's nickname for Sylvia Simmons was Buddha. She was this round, <laughs> smiling woman. She, she, they loved marijuana, loved pot. And she was a, a singer who acted very well, meaning she would inhabit the song. She didn't come at you. Like right now, if you watch any of the shows on television about singing like The Voice and, America, yeah. and so forth, those singers pretty much, most part, never saw a soft note they want to hit. Whereas Sylvia would bring you in with soft singing and louder singing, and her acting made you feel that she was experiencing and living what she was really singing about. Yeah, it it it. it, um, it I mean, the, those those appearances with you are, are probably the only ones that that are on recorded Thank on you. television. Well, Thank you. Another favorite of a clip of mine is is and it captures what you are and what midday was and and what New York is. It's it's um I guess Lawrence Welk had come to town. And oh, oh, oh yeah, you I de- love Lawrence Welk. You decide him. you decide to put him on with Disco Sally. From uh, yeah. Studio Fifty Four, well, and I, th- I think that that embodies the era, that embodies what New York you have was to, you at have that to time. Explain, you have to explain who Lawrence Welk was. You know, this very straight-laced guy, <laughs> and Disco Sally. Just take a minute and explain yeah. it because like, you can't assume people automatically know that. But well, they are on Bill Box TV. You're yeah, right. well, they run the here in Vancouver. They run um, Lawrence Welk on, on. I guess it's Saturdays or Sundays on P, on the PBS Good. affiliate here. Uh, for about an hour, he was, and, he was a very successful man. Yeah, and it's just you know it's big band, and it's it's um, you know as you said, a very straight laced. And here's Disco Sally, who was I guess she was about the same age as he was, but she yeah, was hanging out Disco, at Studio Fifty Four, right? She, she became a novelty for this uh, Elton single elderly woman, always wearing sunglasses, who would go to Studio Fifty Four. Phenomenal discotheque that made headlines around the world. Mm-hmm. The disco did that, and she just became, uh, as Andy, like she had her 15 minutes of fame. So I thought, why don't we introduce? This was not the whole show. This was like a moment in yeah. the show, like two minutes. Let's bring Disco Sally on and have her meet Lawrence Welk, and it, it, it was priceless. At the same, I had another idea once years later on Comedy Tonight with the the uh, acerbic comedian Andrew Dice Clay, who right. was putting people down and flicking cigarettes, have him on with psychologist Dr. Joyce Brothers and have Dr. Joyce Brothers analyze him. And that also was on Dualbox TV on YouTube. Some of those little setups were a lot of fun yeah. for me as a talk show host. Yeah, it's just a, a genius moment in terms of programming, just to see Thank what you, what you are you. And, and what the show was. Um, Joe Franklin, what, what was he like? Joe Franklin is just a friendly guy, always, hey, Bill, when are you going to be on my show? Joe Franklin was a talk show host out of New York for many, many years, and I did a show a couple times. Sometimes he'd have, like, three guests on the panel, uh-huh. and he would just say, uh, talk about that for a while, or talk about this. Then he'd get up and leave, go in the other room, and come back. <laughs> he was just a great character. I guess these are some of the great New York characters, like you are, um, who we would find out about, you know, wherever we were elsewhere in, <laughs> on this continent. And um, they just sort of, um, I guess, typify, if you will, what New York is all about. Yes, that's true. Well put. Yeah. Very well put. Um, are you working on another book now? 
No, I'm working on book promotion. Well, Spike Unleashed just came out like a month and a half ago. The fun part is writing. The fun part is editing. And then it's very important to get the word out there. You know, there's a lot of competition for books. So my at the present time, that's why I'm not doing a podcast. I'm not writing another book. I'm focusing as much as I can, Joseph, on promoting Spike Unleashed as told to Bill Boggs. Uh, at some point in, I would say some point in next year, I'm just going to be trying to sell both books as a cartoon. I have one more. I have, I believe I have one more Spike book that I, I like to do. I don't want to reveal anything about it, but I don't, I can't let that stand in the time that it would take to do that stand in the way of trying to monetize 600 pages of comedy, which is essentially what both books represent yeah. and selling it as a cartoon. I've had more than one person say, Bill, this would be a great cartoon because it's the books. The Avengers Spike the Wonder Dog and Spike Unleashed, totally designed to make you laugh and visual. There's a lot of visual in it as you're reading it. There is, yeah. And um, some, some even the uh, illustrations are, are, are quite funny as well. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a comic book as such. It's a no. comic novel. But there are oh, 20 illustrations in the book by Spike's own personal illustrator, Jacob Below. Yeah. And that was my son Trevor's idea. He said, Let's put, some, put some illustrations in the book. And I found a young man who had just graduated from um, art school and really looking for, looking for work. And we liked him and he liked us. And so there are his 20, and plus he designed the cover the, the, mm. of the new Spike Unleashed. Yeah. Um, it's, pu- it's published by Postal Press and it's yeah. available on Amazon. Just type in Bill Boggs, B-O-G-G-S, book, or Spike Unleashed, and it takes you right to the page. Or just type in orderspike.com, and it takes you right to my uh, Amazon page, the book's Amazon page. Yeah. Yeah. People should pick it up. It, it, it is, is laugh-out-loud funny, as I said. I really appreciate ago. your recommendation. Great. Yeah. Um, it, when you um, think about... Um, what you've meant to, to television and, and, you know, it is an institution in New York, your, your, your whole career and your output. Um, and I'm sure you get calls from, cause I've seen clips of yours on, on document, various documentaries over the last few years. Do you get a lot of calls for that sort of stuff to, from your archives? Hey? I have a wonderful agent, David Peck, real in the years.com. And yeah, we've, I think I've had clips in, Two little Richards, uh, two little Richard documentaries, a Miles Davis documentary, a Richard Pryor documentary. Uh, I've been in a Dean Martin documentary, Frank Sinatra documentary, the Roy Cohn Nat- ones, Natalie Wood, Roy Cohn, and Garvey Dahl, off the top of my head. And it's nice to make a, occasionally have David Peck call me and get, I'm find I'm getting a little check for something. It never hurts. It never hurts. <laughs> the, the the Sinatra interviews. I mean, uh, th- that interview. Um, I've seen that in in various places. I mean, is that the interview that you get asked about a lot? The, yeah, I get I, because it was the the longest interview of Sinatra's career. It was uh, the first time he ever appeared on a talk show. I was a rookie host in New York. Everybody wanted to know. They couldn't believe it. How mm-hmm. did you get Frank Sinatra? And, and it was quite simple. I met Frank Sinatra. I was introduced to Frank Sinatra at 4 o'clock in the morning in Vegas, having seen his show that night, 
right after I saw Elvis's show. And Frank and I connected, and he knew I had a TV show, and he volunteered to come and do the show. Is that really that simple? Wow. But I was a lifelong Sinatra fan uh, to this day. And uh, so it was a huge, a huge honor that Frank came and did uh, Midday Live with Bill Boggs. And at one point during the show, he says, you know, I, I, I just realized I've never been on a talk show before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was good. Yeah. Bill, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed talking to you today and how much I enjoyed the books. I'm a fan and an admirer of your work. That um, you'll, just, you'll just never know what, what this has been like for me talking to you just now. Oh, Joseph, you're very kind to me. I, I really appreciate it. The kind words you said about my work, about the Spike books, is not something I take for granted. I think in all of us creative people, there's always that teeny bit of inse- in, um, insecurity. And when someone tells you how much their work means to you, as you have done today, uh, I'm quite grateful. And I just want to remind people, that a lot of that work is on Billbox TV, on YouTube. Go and subscribe. It's free. Thank you, Joseph. The website for more is at BillBoggs.com. Uh, the YouTube channel is BillBoggs TV. That's the uh, YouTube channel, BillBoggs TV. Uh, the book is called Spike Unleashed, The Wonder Dog Returns. It's published by Post Hill Press. Its author, Bill Boggs, joined me on the line from New York City. In Vancouver, I'm Joseph Planto.